Reading the Bible Together podcast. I'm your host, Angela Smith. Today we are talking about Acts chapter 18. And today I have back with me Dr. Peter Kapsner from the Christian Ministries Department at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Angela. This is so fun to be doing this podcast again with you, walking through the book of Acts. There is so much in this book. And every time that you're doing a chapter, I'm sure you're seeing all sorts of stuff that maybe we've never seen before. And this chapter is no exception. And that is the most fun to get to sit across from somebody and to hear what stuck out to them. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And great people you have coming in week in and week out. Mm It's so fun. Day after day. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So I asked you to come back because as I was reading through chapter 18, I got stuck on Acts 18.18. Well, let's first, let's start at the beginning. And at the beginning where I first got tripped up was Paul comes, he leaves Athens and he comes to Corinth and he's with Aquila and Priscilla Mm -hmm. who are tent makers. And Paul lived and worked with them for they were tent makers just as he was. And then each Sabbath he was found at the synagogue teaching. And I got stopped, stopped because I thought, oh, he's, he's, Work is he working then during the week and then teaching in the synagogue, which is not kind of I guess the view that I had. I just thought, oh well, Paul is a minister of the gospel and that's what he does. Right? Yeah, and and he clearly was supporting himself financially through a variety of what we would probably call secular work, and mm-hmm. and that distinction between sac- sacred and secular I think is a false distinction to begin with. But he's clearly engaged with some sort of labor throughout the week that doesn't have to do with an organizational ministry kind of context. And so when he's showing up at the Sabbath on Sunday, it's just part of his ongoing life where he's tent making, as we would mm-hmm. like to say, whatever he's doing and however he's providing income. But then in the Sabbath, he comes to teach, and he's perfectly qualified to do all of that, but he's not running an organization called the church throughout the rest of the week. And it's pretty fascinating, the context. And I would also point out that it doesn't mean he's not doing ministry Correct. during the week either. Well, I think when, when we start understanding ourselves as ambassadors of the kingdom, then you, you that's not a job from which you retire. It's not a vocation that you step in and out of 40 days a week. It, it is our very primary understanding of, of why Jesus created this new resurrection community mm-hmm. so that we could be ambassadors everywhere we go. And in that way, there isn't anything called the secular world and the sacred world. It's all God's world, and we are the ambassadors within it. Yeah, so good. So yeah. that was the first thing that tripped me up. Love and it. then the second, was there anything more you wanted to say about Sabbath? Or Well, I just think it's interesting that in his teaching, though, he was clearly qualified that just because he was tent making mm. throughout the week, right? I think sometimes, Angela, I look back at that time 2,000 years ago, and I have a mistaken assumption that we've somehow gotten smarter over 2,000 years. Mm. And, and I think, no, in a lot of ways, I've gotten dumber. Uh, more, even more <laughs> recently, with the amount of texting that I do, I can't spell anymore. I've clearly gotten dumber yeah. just on that metric <laughs> yeah. alone. But when you look back at the Greek philosophy that he had to argue through, or you look back at the mystery religions that he had to deal with, when he showed up, as the text talks about on Sunday, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks about the gospel— he was dealing with some pretty intellectually rigorous kinds of arguments at that time. And so um, just because he was tent making or not involved in, in some fancy master's degree program related to ministry, he clearly had the capability of dealing with some really intense kind of arguments. I can barely read Greek philosophy to this day and understand what's going on. And yet he's having to navigate those conversations as he taught. It must have been a fascinating thing to hear him teach on those weekends. Well, and what I appreciate about him is I think it's when he goes to Rome and he talks about the unknown God. Right. That to me, that says he's been listening. He's been learning about the culture that he's in. He's getting to know the people that are around him and then presenting the gospel in that framework 
you know, keeping the truth of the gospel, but bringing, presenting it in a way that's understandable to them because he listened, yeah. because he came in with humility. Agreed. And and I think in that we can learn a couple of things, too, is that I do understand the impulse that on a Sunday morning gathering today, we want to have the kind of service where believers feel comfortable and there's coffee and we have 15, 20 minute sermons with YouTube videos and that sort of thing. But just like in his day, there is a serious complexity in the world going on around us. The issues families and individuals and children and older people and single people are facing are extremely complex complex issues and demand a rigorous response. So I would hope at some point in time um, through people that are listening and with humility and are understanding the culture around them, that they also can then create the kind of response that's hopeful in the midst of the complexity of today, because it was a very complex time in his time too, but he listened, he knew the culture, and then he had the rigor to deal with some really difficult context and, and conversations. And I'm looking for the same sort of thing today, even though I know when mm-hmm. we meet, we, it, it's hard to do just on a Sunday for an hour, but hopefully there's some other ways in which we can engage with those conversations. Yep. And then the other thing that stopped me in my tracks is verse 18. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, after that, then said goodbye to his brothers and sisters and went to nearby a town I don't know how to say. (laughs) Then he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then he set sail for Syria. Yeah. And and you said you you came to me earlier and you said, what's the deal here? You noticed something that I would have probably just glossed right over in reading the story. Yeah. He shaved his head. So, and then the, in I, the reference had me go back to numbers. I was in number six, one through 21 Mm -hmm. talking about the Nazarite vow. And so then that's why I asked you to come back because I wanted to understand more, that vow. I mean, I I don't I don't know. I I just thought it was interesting because watching Paul, who was Saul, who was a Pharisee, living under the law, and then coming to understand the grace mm-hmm. of the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, who was the fulfillment of the law, him having a ending a vow that was from the Old Testament. I thought that from my the brief understanding I had was that it was a way to, you know, gain intimacy right. with God. Right. That I just thought that was interesting that it's still part, being Jewish is still part of who Paul is. And I felt like I wanted to understand it more. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's so many conversations you just apt to, you aptly described it, that, that it wasn't leaving Jewishness behind. It was maybe reframing some of the Jewish rituals in light of the resurrection. What does it mean to walk in some of these, what can be beautiful rituals? And one of them was the Nazarene vow. And it's not like I had a ton of information on this right in my back pocket. So, <laughs> so you forced me to do all sorts of research on it. And, and it was, yeah, and it was really interesting. I mean, you've said a few things related to it. Nazar or the, or the root word of the Nazarene vow uh, is to separate from, it's to, it's to enter into a space in which you want to intentionally um, engage with God on some certain things. And, um, and it happened in a few different ways. There were some more permanent Nazarene or Nazarite kinds of vows, uh, characters that took those vows in the Old Testament. Samuel the prophet, uh, Samson the judge, kind of had these permanent Nazarite vows associated with them. But any male or female could take a temporary Nazarite vow where they were going to separate themselves from the society around them and and sanctify themselves in front of God, usually for a special purpose or a, a specific reason. And it typically was around 30 days or so. And, and 
the heart of the vow was that you abstained from anything related to grapes. Which I thought was so interesting. It's so interesting, I mean, right? it was detailed. It was. And, and it wasn't just like, don't drink wine. It was don't even come near the skin of a grape. Right. And, and, <laughs> or a raisin or yeah, anything that, grown on the vine of a right. grape. Which was in, and I, I tried to go through that a little bit more, like, why might that be? And there's, it's more speculation perhaps, but I think it's pretty reliable speculation that um, grapes were a primary symbol or metaphor for the fertility of the land and often were part of the Baal worship in the land because Baal was seen as the god of fertility who was able to bring forth a prosperous future for the people in their family and their livestock and their land. And, and to have a, a land flowing with grapes of some sort really represented the idea that Baal was being faithful to you. So to withdraw from that meant that you were separating from anything associated with Baal, which actually then also came into the other parts of this vow, which is the reason why they would keep their hair growing, but then ultimately shave it. Some of the origin of that was that the Egyptian people tended to wear their, um, they, they would shave their head. I mean, when you watch old like Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments movies, or even the Prince of Egypt, a cartoon, you know, you see the old Egyptians and they uh, didn't, they would always shave their heads. And so to let your hair grow for that period of time was to disassociate yourself from sort of the worship of Egypt as well. And then the dead body part of it, they weren't to be around dead bodies during that time because they were seen as sort of the ultimate symbol of the corrupting influence of sin. And so it was to remove yourself from the corrupting influence of Baal, to remove yourself from the corrupting influence of the history of Egypt, and then to move, remove yourself from the corruption of the sin of death. It really was to set apart and be sanctified in front of God for that period of time. So it was really interesting why they would take that vow. And I love that any person within the Jewish faith could do it, male or female. It didn't matter. It wasn't just set aside for some holy class of priests or something along those lines. Yeah. And what I thought was interesting is that if they, while they were in the midst of the vow, if they did come in contact with a dead body, then the hair that has was, had grown right. was not able to be sacrificed, and your vow had to start all over again. Exactly. And then, we, but when you got to the end of it and you shaved your head, your hair actually became part of the sacrifice at the end. It was fascinating, right? But yeah. I think there's something in that even for today. So going back to your comment about the fact that their Jewishness carried forward and some of the, the sacred sim- symbolism within Judaism, within the resurrection life of the New Testament now, I think even in 2021, 22, 23, moving forward where we are today, we can talk about what it means to separate ourselves for a distinct season of time from the blending of the worldly values around us, from from the idolatry of the world around us. I, anybody who listens to Christian radio or has been to churches, we talk a lot about the fact there's idols all around us, but what do we do about it? And I think some sort of intentional act of separating, it's not necessarily going to be from grapes and shaving our head and all of the rest of that, but that act of separating down saying, wait, I'm probably being influenced by the idolatry in the world around me in a lot of ways of which I'm unaware. And so to separate myself from those in a really significant, intentional kind of way probably will let me see some of the idolatry around me for a bit. I think it's a very healthy practice to do some version of a modern Nazarene vow uh, right now to to do that work. So would you say, because it sounds a lot like fasting to me. Yeah, that's probably a good analogy, right? Would you you say it's, 
what would you say would be some of the similarities and maybe the differences? Yeah, I think fasting is something where you're really trying to get a sense of God's leading and discernment on behalf of an important decision, typically speaking, or, or some practice, um, you know, or maybe of depriving yourself so that, again, it's, it's a bit of a separation. I think this is different. I think this is about I'm going to get out of Dodge for a little while. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm living in the soup that is this world. We all do. And I don't know about you, Angela, but I realize that until until I get out of Dodge, I don't realize how much I have been impacted in my thinking, the way I carry myself, the way that I treat people. Um, it's kind of the air that we breathe. It's like a secondhand smoke. It, it really is impacting me and affecting me, even though I'm not intentionally maybe writing the kind of movies that show up on Netflix or Amazon Prime. But when I may be sick and I'm at home for like three or four days and all I'm doing is sitting there watch Amazon Prime, it, it, it begins to infect me in ways that I don't know about. So to separate from, uh, out from like that allows me to just sort of breathe some fresh air in my spirit and say, oh, wait, the kingdom really is different than this world. And I was following idols I didn't even know. And, and so that separation, I think, is important. So it feels a little bit more like a sabbatical or a retreat yeah. from something I think so. In addition to fasting. Yeah, I think it's like that's fasting fair. and <laughs> it's yeah. like more than fasting. Yeah, I think that's a fair example. And and I do there's just so many of those things within the Old Testament that seem foreign to us as to why they practice those things. But so much of the invitation in the New Testament is to remember the heart underneath these external practices, that they aren't just practices to somehow please God. There's an intentionality within those practices that is teaching us something deeper and richer in our spiritual journey. So I think not just the Nazarene vow, this one verse that you happen to notice, mm-hmm. but the book of Acts and so many of the Pauline letters are filled with puzzling kinds of descriptions like this, that when we let them be what they are, typically derived from something in Judaism, I think we can learn a lot about our spiritual journey. Well, and something I appreciated that you said before we started recording was that to the first couple centuries of people reading this, that they would have understood it. They would have, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they would have gotten it, but we don't understand it. So we have to do a little more research to understand the context yeah. of it. Yeah, I, I understand the idea of being chucked into prison in the book of Acts or maybe a shipwreck or some of these mm-hmm. things. They're, they're sort of obvious to me. But a lot of these verses, and I'm so glad you teased them out, a lot of them I do just gloss over. I don't notice. But the people of that time, there probably would have been a rich mosaic of narrative going on that I just miss when I read these. Unless, until we stop and do this kind of conversation and see, wow, there's a lot going on in <laughs> Acts chapter 18. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. I love I it. Appreciate it's so fun. It. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for Acts 18. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. We'll see you next time for Acts 19. The Reading the Bible Together podcast is a production of Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Hosted, produced, and edited by Angela Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, consider financially supporting Faith Radio. Find more information at myfaithradio.com. 